True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to my interview with criminologist Dr. Lisa Grobler. Prison by Numbers, Understanding Prison Gangs. Today's intro to the episode is a little longer than usual, because there's lots of cool news to share. So if you want to skip ahead, feel free, but don't complain if you miss out either. Today's episode is sponsored by The Counter. I have a confession. I am a fudgeaholic. It is my favorite sweet treat in the entire world. So imagine my excitement when I found The Counter on social media and saw the amazing flavors of fudge they have. Yes, I ordered some, because, well, life is short. And it was legitimately the best fudge I have ever tasted in my life. So far, I've tasted the peanut butter flavor, the cookies and cream flavor, and the cream egg flavor. And I highly recommend it. Even better, the counter is not a huge manufacturing concern. Mick Pasco, owner of the counter, told me that they're a small, literally three-woman confectionery company based in Craighall Park, Johannesburg. They hand-make all of their confectionery in small batches and are most well-known for their creamy fudge and gooey chocolate brownies. Over the years, they've slowly grown their confectionery and baked goods range and are now stocked in over 90 retailers across South Africa, notably Yuppie Chef, Doppio Zero, Jackson's Real Food Market, Food Barn Deli, Giovanni's Deli, and more. The counter also specializes in corporate and personalized gifting, sourcing items from other local small producers to create the perfect gift box for each recipient. All of their products are delivered nationwide, and can be found on their online store. For any tailor-designed gift boxes or orders, customers can email Meg on eat at thecounter.co.za. Okay, I'm going to go eat some fudge now. Oh, wait, you want an episode, don't you? (sighs) Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Amelia Fenter, Mandri Olafia, Rochelle Stain, Steph Jones, Winona Marks, Nadine Minar, Ben van Veik, Nadine Grobler, Courtney, Clint van Beeren, and Ali Katz for your support on Patreon. Don't forget that our first live Q&A is happening on Wednesday the 20th of April. This is exclusively for Patreon supporters and you can submit that question you've always wanted to ask me on the Patreon platform now. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you like discounts, who doesn't? Head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, Print Crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discounts and support the show at the same time. 
We also have a new discount code this week from the awesome people over at Wallpaper Online, who recently donated a wallpaper installation to the Community Intervention Centre at Tableview Police Station. CRC offers free counselling to victims of crime, and the beautification of the counselling room creates a more relaxed and peaceful atmosphere. Wallpaper Online is offering TCSA listeners 10% off their online wallpaper orders by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. If you're redecorating, please consider supporting the sponsor of the show and support TCSA at the same time. If you follow True Crime South Africa on social media, you would have known why I didn't release an episode last week. And that's because this past Monday I launched my brand new podcast series, I Lived Through This. Here's the promo for the new show. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from my other podcasts, True Crime South Africa or the Devil's Dorp Companion podcast. Through my podcast journey, I discovered the life-changing power of stories. Stories told from the heart, as a narrative of a human being's lived experience, are enormously impactful for both the storyteller and the listener. In my new podcast series, I Lived Through This, I bring you the stories of ordinary South Africans who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and survived to tell you the tale in their own words. From getting trapped in a destructive cult, living through a natural disaster, life-changing disease, and even a fight for survival with a wild animal, join me for these powerful tales of facing the unimaginable and fighting to be able to say, I lived through this. Catch I lived through this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. When it rains, it pours. Water's up to my chin. Episode 1 of I Live Through This is already available on all of your platforms, except YouTube, because, well, YouTube is a pain in the butt, and it's on my to-do-when-I-have-energy list. But it's on all the podcast platforms, so check it out after you've listened to this episode. Prison gangs are a concept that is generally mystifying and terrifying in equal measures to the public. When we hear about crimes that have been committed by gang members, they're often some of the most heinous and vicious. Think the Nevotville murders, which I covered in episode 62, or the murder of Hannah Cornelius. As a result, our fear often clouds our logic, and we may be less likely to learn the truth behind these gangs. Dr. Lisa Krobler is an independent criminologist who's made it her life's work to understand these gangs, how they're formed, and why they exist. I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Krobler for the podcast, and it is this interview you're going to hear today. I went into this interview with a few preconceptions about what I might hear. And let me tell you, within just a few minutes, my mind was blown. And yours is going to be too. 
So strap in and get ready to learn about what really goes on behind the bars. Let's get into Prison by Numbers, Understanding Prison Gangs. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. I'm Dr. Lisa Krobler. I'm presently working as a correctional criminologist, uh, independent and for DCS. I asked Dr. Krobler how she came to be in the field that she's in. My fascination, really, with crime started sort of at a young age. And eventually, when I figured out what I wanted to do, I settled for criminology. So I studied, I did my undergrad, and I went through to PhD. And my PhD was on police corruption. And the interest in that came from my master's, which I did in public sector corruption. So with a PhD, I just took out the police corruption section or, or side of corruption and focused purely on that. During the process, I became far more interested in criminal behavior, obviously, and but working with offenders. So the, the journey really started back in about 2007 when I approached correctional services and said, I'm prepared to do risk assessments for them on high-profile offenders, problem offenders, lifers, those kind of people. And because they didn't have uh, posts for criminologists, I did it on a voluntary basis up until 2014 when the workload just became so heavy that I just said to them, look, I can't afford to do this anymore. So they gave me a two-year contract. They managed to put me on a two-year contract. And that's where my journey began. And that, that's my real passion is risk assessments, working with offenders, understanding them, understanding their behavior. And before I even continue, I have to put in a caveat here. Understanding and explaining criminal behavior is not justifying it. And because that's the one area the public always gets a little bit emotional about understanding me. When you assessing offenders, you have to really, really go very in-depth into their lives, into their history, to be able to understand why they are where they are today. If they don't understand it, many of them don't. If they don't understand their behavior, how can we even start changing it? So that's the nub of it, just to understand where this behavior comes from in order to be able to, to treat it, really. That's the bottom line. So yeah, with that caveat in place, so my main function um, with correctional services was doing uh, risk assessments for parole boards, for the NCCS and the minister and the CMCs on different categories of offenders, your serials, your lifers, murderers, pedophiles, any sort of more difficult category of offender. Yeah, and uh, prison gangs is not a standalone thing for me. I decided, and with the help of a colleague, Chris Malchas, and, and of course offenders, those that are willing to share, empowered myself with knowledge on prison gangs because you can't do this kind of work and you've got prison gangsters sitting in front of you and you don't have a clue what, what the nuances are or what they're talking about or you know, it's common. So, so prison gangs per se is just really a part of of the work that I that I do. So it's understanding I must have to be able to do this work. 
So really, Dr. Krobler's interest in and knowledge of prison gangs came as a result of her needing to develop accurate risk assessments of offenders for the Department of Correctional Services. And if an offender belongs to a prison gang, as you'll learn, it deeply impacts everything about his life and has a major impact on his possible rehabilitation. Now, whenever I speak with experts like this, I like to understand the educational route they took to the work they're doing, because I really feel like we need to encourage more people to go into work that will help to improve law and order in this country. And I know many people decide to study things like psychology and criminology, but don't really understand what they can do with those qualifications. So I asked Dr. Krobler to skip back a bit and tell us exactly how she got to be qualified to do this work. I studied my, my postgrad through UNISA, so other words, your honours master's PhD, because they have got a very good postgrad criminology department, and um, so is UCT, so uh, one or two other universities. But the difference with UNISA is they're very practical. So even from honours level, you do a whole module on risk assessment of offenders. That's why I chose them, because they are very practically orientated in terms of work. The problem with criminology and criminologists in South Africa, you, you would think that it's obvious that professions like SAPS, like DCS, particularly correctional services, would have a criminologist, but they don't. And it's been an endless battle to to our profession recognized in correctional services. It's, um, I know that UNISA has an MOU with, with DCS and their honor students do assessments up in Gauteng. That's not ideal. What would, I would love to see at the end of the day is criminologist posts created in correctional services to do this. I mean, we the profession that, that specializes, so to speak, in criminal behavior. So our criminologists, we, we find obviously mostly in academia. And if I look at correctional services again, we, we've got a couple of master's graduates in criminology. Uh, we've got people with honors. We've got people with, with BAs in criminology, but they're not used in the field at all. They're used as security officials. You know, and, and it's, it's hard because students are always asking me, you know, please, can we job shadow you? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I'm saying at the end of the day, your best option really is to join organizations like SAPS or this is now outside of academia, SAPS Correctional Services um, as, as officials and sort of see if you can get yourself into correctional services does have, don't get me wrong, they have got assessment component, also mostly populated by security officials. They're not, they're not done by professionals. So always my advice is to them is, is always to, yes, study your criminology, do your pracs, uh, but then join correctional services and see if you can work for um, as, as assessment officials or if you can work at case management committees where they interview offenders or that, that kind of thing. Dr. Krobler told me that she did her BA, majoring in political sciences and criminology, and ended up going with what she calls the lesser of two evils. And I mean, I can fully understand that. I think criminals would probably be far easier to understand than politicians. <clears throat> I asked Dr. Krobler 
about the two areas of her specialization, police corruption and gangs, and asked her if, in her experience, there is any crossover there. When I look at my PhD, they they crossover more in terms of police corruption and, and street gangs rather than prison gangs. That's where the two worlds collide because because of the way that street gangs and gang bosses corrupt police, there's a huge uh, relationship there. Uh, you know, obviously not just with police. Street gangs have got their magistrates, they've got their judges, they've got their prosecutors, they've got their cops. But in terms of prison gangs, not really because of more the access. You know, it's a different arm of state. Before we get into the specifics of prison gangs, Dr. Krobler wanted to explain how street gangs and prison gangs really are very intermeshed. You cannot really separate street gangs and prison gangs. There's a confluence and a constant flow uh, between the two. When youngsters join street gangs, they almost immediately start preparing for prison um, because in, in most cases it's an inevitability. Uh, because of their lifestyle, obviously. So, you know, like they would learn to sabela, touch on that later. So, so that, that when they do get to prison, eventually they're not, they're not ignorant. But what has happened in the last couple of decades, the traditional number gangs, they used to be called the Wetzlarners, because their job for the end of apartheid was to fight for the rights of prisoners. And the number was not allowed to be taken out of the firuka, out of the prison walls at all. Uh, in fact, if it was mentioned on the street, you would be heard. And then round about the 1980s, uh, people like Colin Stansfield and Jackie Lonty, Colin Stansfield was uh, 28, Jackie Lonty 26, they, they took a lot of the, the rituals and the pieces, bits and pieces of the number onto the street. So what's happening today is the number in prison is, is no longer pure, if I can put it that way. It's, it's not pure anymore. If you talk to the old guys in prison, the old Betzlaners, they, they'll tell you it's, it's gangsterism today. So what happens is people on the outside um, who've got money, gangs who've got money, they buy their ranks. Okay, they buy their ranks on the outside. They come in, and obviously they're going to get challenged. They're going to get challenged by the prison gangsters. Where did you get your your rank? How did you get it? You've got to prove it. If it's found out that it was bought, the the generals, the, the senior gangsters will strip it off you. And if you persist on saying that, yes, you are or whatever you are, they will tell you, okay, prove it. And that never ends well because all arguments between gangs, all okay, oh, that's also something I'll touch on later, usually has to get settled with some sort of blood. So, you know, they either have to hit a, another offender, fail France or something, or they have to stab a water to prove their position. So, yeah, they, um, they, they there's a constant, as I say, flow between between street and prison, prison and street. But your to, to get back to your original question, if you're an American gangster outside or a hard living, one of the big gangs, they have 26, yeah, 26, 27 or 28. But once they come inside, 
they will only belong to one number. So you, you leave your American hat outside and you put on your 26 hat or whatever your prison number is. Because according to the number, there's those three number camps and that's it. You can't, that's why it's, it's so Yemakar when the, the gangsters come in and come in with their gangster ways and their street problems and all this kind of thing. Because the number, they'll tell you there is no fourth camp. It's only the three, and it creates a lot of problems. Let's look at a few things here. So there are street gangs, the Americans, the hard livings, etc. Those are the guys we see controlling certain areas, running drugs, and having gun wars in the middle of neighborhoods. Then we have the prison gangs. In the Western Cape, for the most part, the numbers, the 26s, 27s, and 28s. We'll chat later about some of the others throughout the country. A street gang member outside can have a number, but he does not operate under that number on the outside. In the Americans, for instance, there might be members that affiliate themselves with any of the numbers, but that identity only exists within the walls of a prison. And the street gang identity does not exist inside the prison at all. If you're a street gang member in prison, you're in one of the numbers, and that's it. And this concept that there is no fourth camp, there is no outside world, just astounds me. There are certainly far more astounding revelations ahead about these gangs, but this one just struck me. When you enter prison, something for which you are trained when you enter a gang from day one, because you know you're going to end up there, everything on the outside ceases to exist. But of course, it does exist. And these guys know that one day they will step foot outside prison walls again. But what happens inside will often impact their future in these street gangs when they leave. The, the other thing you've got to remember is, in terms of identity, the number gangs, if, you, if you've seen a number gang, you, you go out with a lot of power, go out with a lot of knowledge, which is it's, it's an important commodity on the street. They call it the Mvugu. So you, you've got the Mvugu, which is the knowledge of the number. So you, you'll find sometimes that senior gang bosses outside, there's some that haven't really spent any significant time in prison. So when a senior guy comes out, they're already going to know that guy's coming out. This is how, how it works. Uh, very often they will offer him something to school him. The gang boss will offer him something to school him so that he, he also has the knowledge of the number. But if they are clever they don't the old number doesn't fall for it because once the gang boss has got the umbugu so to speak the old guy becomes a threat to him because he will have more followers if you know what i mean and reduce the gang boss's power a little bit you know on the outside they sabella the young age they start sabella and we'll we'll also I'll, I'll also deal with the sabella later they they learn the language they learn some of the rituals you know, as I said earlier, there's uh, broken bits 
are taught to people, to youngsters, for example, that haven't been to prison yet. That your actual number gangster, it's, it's their identity, it's, their, it's who they are. So when you speak to offenders, when they're outside, they'll say, like say, for example, they'll tell me they, they, they had an illegal gun, let's just say, for example. And then I'd ask them, okay, so where did you get it? And they'd say, yeah, um, I got it from that sergeant too that lives in the other area, that lives in whatever area. See, they, it's, it's constantly part of the identity, totally, because when they're inside, that's who they are. They, they you know, so yes, when they go out there in American, the, the number, the whole number identity is, is totally ingrained. You know, they sabella still outside, they... They might even do some ritual. Their funerals outside are very ritualistic. Very, they're very military. When it comes to street prison gangs, you cannot actually. They don't. They don't leave the number persona inside and then go outside and become a, you know, a, 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 like a typical street gang. So they still, the way they see themselves is still very much number oriented. The true numbers members do not see themselves as members of anything. To them, it's not a club you attend or a subscription you renew. It is a deeply ingrained identity. To many of these guys, they're no longer able to separate who they are as human beings from their identity as a number. It is one and the same. And as Dr. Krobler will tell us shortly, this shines through when they go on to commit crimes on the outside. Well, what is very, very important, and what the public don't actually understand, I don't think, is the influence of prison gangs on crime scenes. What happens is, in a lot of really high-profile cases we've had in the Western Cape, outside there's a very, very strong prison gang element. Anybody who's read the number uh, by Johnny Steinberg will, will will get an idea. But even in that case, in that, that particular incident at Nibotville, for example, Doggy Dog features usually. But he, for example, he wasn't the most senior gangster on the scene. Yeah, but because he had just been released from prison, he has got far more, this happens on, on various crime scenes, um, they have far more say. They'll always be a leader. The most senior gangster, say, on that crime scene would have almost abdicated to him out of respect. You know, let him take the lead. Because on any crime scene where you have a number of gangsters, be they outside gangsters, prison gangsters, but it's usually the, 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 the leader on a crime scene is usually a high-ranking prison gangster. And they are the ones, too, that during any of these um, criminal events, they are the ones that can stop whatever from happening at any time um, of the attack. Because obviously they really very seldom do. And then you'll get different levels of gangster on the scene. So your ones that are sort of lower levels and younger, will always try and impress the, the main guy, you know, albeit through extreme cruelty or um, he's the one that does the shooting or, or whatever. But your instructions are going to come from the one leader on the scene. 
And as I say, that leader is not necessarily a high-ranking street gangster, but he would be a high-ranking prison gangster. Okay, so this just blew my mind. Firstly, Dr. Krobler refers to the Nivotville murders. The absolutely horrendous case I covered back in episode 62. During the research for that episode, I came across a lot of references to gang connections, but I was never sure how much of it was real and how much of it was legend. And here Dr. Krobler is saying that it was most certainly heavily influenced by gang activity. The other thing that amazed me here was the importance of analysing the crime scene with the possibility of gang involvement in mind. Because, as I would say to Dr. Krobler, if the most senior prison gangster on the scene is able to stop the crime at any time, that really means that this is the guy you need to identify as the investigator. He's the guy with the clout to have stopped it all, and didn't. So, really... It should be vital training for any investigator to understand these gang elements and be able to identify them. Um, absolutely, absolutely, because you know, if there's one thing gangsters are good at, and that, that's obfuscating and, as they say, marking too. In other words, you know, a fooling authority. That they, They're very good at that. The dynamics in the court, too, are also never what they really, what they appear to be. So. You know, in, in gang trials and things, you have gangsters trying to set each other up. Again, gang bosses or senior leaders telling the others to, to take take the fall for them. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of dynamics going on in court and in investigations. A lot of gang dynamics. But yeah, to answer your question, I think it would be fantastic if, if the investigating officers had that knowledge, um, which somebody like Jeremy Veary has, but now he's been booted out of sets. So yeah, I could would it would totally help them to, to, to understand who the main players are and, and perhaps why, you know, they've got this particular person to confess when that particular person didn't have the same level of involvement or whatever. Yeah, it would be very useful. For example, I'm I'm sitting with a case at the moment of a chap in George. He's uh, he was convicted along with two others in nineteen ninety seven for a murder, 1997 has been in, the case was 1998. Because he refused to to stand for a robbery where there was a murder as well, his co-accused set him up. And he he was the one of the three that was not on the murder scene. And there he sits, 23 years later, still in prison for a murder he didn't commit. So such is the power of of the gangs amongst each other. It's a totally different world, totally. If authority could understand them better, I think it would be useful. It might not actually change anything at the end of the day, but it would certainly help them to get a clearer picture of who's who and, and the dynamics of the case. Okay. If you're not tired of me saying that my mind is blown yet, you're going to be very soon. What the actual heck? This just made me reassess almost every case I've covered from the Western Cape. 
if this much shifting of blame is happening and people are being set up within gang-affiliated crimes, what is really true and what is not? The man convicted for the brutal rape and murder of Anine Boyson in Bredarsdorp, after all, claimed that he was taking the blame for someone else. Usually when I hear that, I just laugh it off. I wonder, well, who the heck would confess to a crime they didn't commit? Why would someone want to set you up, buddy? Well, apparently, these gangs would. That's who. The man Dr. Krobler refers to has sat in prison for more than two decades for a crime he didn't commit, because the gang members he was involved with was so good at shifting the blame they convinced a court and a prosecutor of his guilt. And he wasn't even there. And as I said to Dr. Krobler, for me this comes back to the victims. They don't get true justice. The families of the victims don't really know who's responsible for their loved one's murders. I wanted to get back to those Nivotville crimes, because that's one of the cases I've covered that's really stuck with me. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you can either pause here now and go and listen, or listen after this. But I asked Dr. Krobler for some more insights around that crime too. You know, there, there was a lot, of, a lot of gang nuances there. For example, the house. Uh, apparently the buildings were white with red roofs. Now, the gangsters involved, there are 27s. 27s work with blood. Their flag is red. So it, it, it was not a happenstance that they picked that target. You know, they looked at the outlay and they said, you know, that's this also flach, you know. Let's, let's go and, and attack there. there. There's an awful lot of sort of thought put in. It's not always, yes, crime scenes, criminal events escalate because very often they, they decide, okay, let's just go do robbery. Um, and then, say, for example, one of the youngsters is a little trigger happy, the shot goes off. Somebody gets hurt, then it just escalates from there. But at the at the end of the day, they, these these criminal events are usually planned, as I say, albeit as starting out as a robbery. Um, but they also do your more sort of big, high-profile gang. You know, more than one perpetrator events usually always have some some element of gang symbolism in them, or uh, gang rituals or some some gang-related thing. Holy you-know-what. The house had a red roof, and that is the 27's blood flag. That whole idea just sends chills down my spine. That crime was not random. As Dr. Krobler says, Gang crimes often escalate, and we don't know that they selected that house with the intention to kill the occupants. It may have initially been planned as a robbery. In the Nivotville case, there was a lot of talk about the so-called leader of the group that night being a man whose street name was Doggy Dog. He'd just come out of prison. Remember what Dr. Krobler said about how even lower-level gangsters who've just come out of prison, have more say at a crime scene than a higher-ranking gangster 
who's been on the street for a while, it actually makes me think that the family members of those victims of Nevotville may never really know what happened there. Of course, there was a surviving victim who gave us a good amount of first-hand information, and as Dr. Krobler would tell me, if three out of five of the offenders gave the same story, there's a pretty good chance you've got a relatively clear picture. But those nuances, the decision-making, the motives and the reasons, will often remain clouded in mystery. With that said, I thought we should get a clear picture of the numbers gangs. Now keep in mind that what Dr. Krobler gives us here is a very broad overview. There are elements of these gangs that could take up entire interviews on their own. And it would be their complexity that really amazed me. Dr. Krobler calls this Numbers 101. We start with a short overview of some of these smaller gangs and then lead into the number. Let me just start with the absolute basics and and that just to explain that obviously prison gangs, they're obviously antisocial criminal groupings. They are a particular subculture within a prison environment and they are ruled by a code of conduct, by laws, customs. They've got very well-defined structures. They've got military ranks and they've got strict disciplinary codes. Okay. But the whole thing is, is rich in, in imagery, symbolism and particular rituals that happen throughout the day. In South African prisons, you've got various prison gangs. The Western Cape only has the number, 26, 27, 28. The other, other provinces have gangs like the Big Fives, RAF 3, RAF 4, which stands for Royal Air Force 23, Royal Air Force 24. And then what you, you also get triple sixes, uh, but they're very, very few and far between. It's, a, it's an occult-based prison gang. But the number gangs are considered to be some of the most dangerous prison gangs in the world because of their levels of violence used, their influence on the prison system, their attacking of warders. So it, although they are a South African-specific, they are renowned for their behavior, so to speak. They, um, they have their own language. So when a term you people would have heard a lot is sabela. So with the prison gangs, as I said, even the street gangs, Sabella is, is their speaking, the way they communicate. It's like you and I are now conversing in English. They will Sabella. And the Sabella is basically made up to coded language, but it has two sort of distinct names. This is Shalambom and Shalamgis. Shalamgis is more specific to 2627 gang. And these languages, this language is, is based on Fanigalo. Uh, and Fanigalore is, is what Poe, their founder, picked up on the mines and the farms back in the day to enable different cultures to be able to communicate. A made-up language, but it's a very deeply coded secret language that they, they use to communicate. So being the member of a gang gives, obviously gives the prison gang the offender status, and he's got sort of some form of power and control that he 
he wouldn't normally have in in a prison environment. The activities that they get involved in in prisons is, you know, it's, it's unrest, riots, sexual malpractices, smuggling, drug abuse, escapes. But in terms of the actual gangs, so your big five, now the big five, the RAF3, RAF4 are smaller prisons. Big prison gangs are your number gangs that are found everywhere. Your big fives, they basically, what makes them different from all the other gangs is that they are pimpers. So in other words, they, they will run to the authorities with information. This puts them in conflict with other prison gangs because pimping is anathema of the number. You don't, the Mapuza, as they're called, uh, officials are your enemy. You don't run to them with, with information, but they obviously all do it for their own benefit. As I said, they're a small gang. Your RAF-3 and your, RAF, your Royal Air Force 3, your Royal Air Force 4, their primary goal is to escape, okay, because they believe that their goods are in Africa. So in other words, outside of the center, and the goods must be protected, and, and the only way they can get to their goods is if they escape. So they spend their lives planning escapes. They constantly try and, and get items in to prisons that, that will enable escapes. And they, they very often use violence against officials to, to be able to escape. So that is their major purpose, really. Okay, and then, and then we get to the number. The number gangs, 26, 27, 28. The, the understanding is that it was started by Po Mabaza. He worked on the mines. And he basically didn't like what was happening there, the discrimination and the unfairness and all the rest. So he left and he went to live in a, in a cave and he was eventually joined by two guys. The, the one was Nongaloza and the other one was Kilikijan. Okay, and they joined him in his crusade against, mostly against white oppression. But they became bandits. They became bandits, highway robbers. They recruited 15 guys. Okay. Poe taught these young men. He taught them the secret language, and he taught them the skills of highway robbery. And then what happened was after a particular robbery session, they came back to the cave, and Kilikian caught Nongaloza having sex with a, a guy called Maguban. So Kilikian was enraged, and he... He challenged Nongaloza to a fight. Nongaloza replied to him, listen, you've never been on the mine. And according to him, same sex between bandits is allowed. Okay, Because this is also stuff that happened on the mine, what he saw and so on. And then they split into two groups. Right? So Kiliki Yan and his seven men would rob by day. And Nongaloza and his eight men would rob by night. So... This is believed where the 27s and the 28s originated. And the number two symbolizes the two leaders, Nongaloza and Kilikia. So that, that is just briefly the, the background. The 28s are the oldest gang. They were formed in 1824, which actually even precedes the South African prison system. And then the 27s shortly after that, and the 26s, are the only gang that were, were formed inside prison at the point uh, by a chap called Gray. When the 26th leaves prison, they leave as 27s. They don't leave as 26s. So the 
sevens and twenty sixes are sort of half brothers, so to speak, and the twenty eights are the biggest and the oldest of all of them. Now, in terms of their characteristics and their profiles and their rank structures, the twenty eights have got two very separate lines. So they've got what they call the silver or private line and the gold line, and then they've got a third division, just the privates, which are the youngsters. In terms of what they're looking for when they recruit, the gold line, they're fighters, but they're a bloodline. So the 28s work, they, they work with blood and poison, right? The blood, the gold line, they get involved in, in fights in prison, and the poison are the vapies. The vapies come out of the private line or the white line. Okay, they don't fight. Traditionally, they, they fix jail conditions. If they're not satisfactory, they have a very strict code of conduct. If junior members have complaints, they first go to their seniors, and then the seniors will decide to, you know, if they want to um, pass the complaints on or not. They have very strict discipline, enforced all the camps, enforced for non-compliance of gang rules. And the type of individuals they look for, remember this is very generalized. The 28s would be more They'd look more at people that are less educated, don't have strong support systems, don't present very well, sort of more unskilled. And their behavior, they, their behavior in prison, they're the only gang that allows, because of their history that allows sexual activity, it's okay, but they all do it. But they're the only ones that formally allow it. So that's basically the 28. 28 rank structure is different from... 27 and 26 have got the same rank structure, but the 28s are different. As I said, they've got two lines, and in those two lines, they've got three divisions. Now, bear in mind that all the prison gang ranks are very militaristic. So you'll have things like generals and colonels and captains and sergeants and that sort of thing, but then you'll also have Ranks like inspectors and yangis, which is a doctor, and mabalang, which is a pen. They document everything that's going on in the gang. They've got their, their number of stars on their lapels. Uh, in other words, they, they call them the gunyas, which um, signifies their rank in the gang, and their position in the gang. And they've each got very specific duties that they perform in the gang. And each one's got a job to do. I just wanted to pause here for a second and say how absolutely fascinating this is. So the numbers gangs that we know today actually originally started as a social movement to fight oppression on the mines. And in 1824, 1824, it's no wonder the number is so complex and steeped in ritual and history. They're older than pretty much any organized group in this country. In all fairness, as is the case with most groups that start off right at the beginning with a positive motive in mind, things have, of course, evolved very differently. But I find it just amazing that the numbers we know today that strike fear into the hearts of people worldwide started in a cave because one man was tired of being oppressed by mine bosses. Dr. Knobler tells us more about the numbers' intricacies. They've all got specific greetings as well. So we're looking at the 28s. 
they greet each other with Weiwei. So when they see a 28, they'll greet Weiwei or Nongolos. In conversation, they will refer to each other as Nongolos. That's their founder. Tattoos, they have also very specific tattoos signifying who they belong to. Common ones are a sunset, because remember, 28s work at night. Chonalanga, which means sunset. They'll always have a 28, either a letter or a Roman numeral. They've often got derogatory images on them. They'll also show their pickup. So in other words, three fingers, your thumb, the, the next two. The silver line picks up left and the gold line picks up right. They'll often depict that on their bodies. And then, of course, their gunyas on their shoulders. And sometimes they'll have like Nongi boy or something like that on too, just to, to respect their leader and their founder, should I say. When it comes to attacks, the gangs have a time frame. So they always talk about Achjar or Sivajar or Sesjar. That's, it can be anything. It can be eight hours, eight days. They have to right a wrong, so to speak. When they do attack, they'll use, you know, stuff that they would find in a prison, like homemade knives, blades, bits of porcelain, padlocks, etc. There are numerous reasons there are that gangs attack. This is important because getting back to what I said in the beginning, where the number is considered to be such a, a dangerous prison gang, the gangs have a saying, my blood is not sweet for my brother. So in other words... You cannot attack somebody in your camp. Sorry, they, they refer to their number as a camp as well. Also getting back to the military imagery. So you can't attack somebody who's in your camp. That is an absolute no-no. Your blood is not sweet for your brother. And you can't fight others either. So if you do, what happens is you've got to, you've got to write that wrong. And usually that happens by attacking a water, so taking blood. But what happens with our gangs is they always use the reason for attacking warders as dissatisfaction. They, so they attack under the guise of dissatisfaction for whatever reason, whatever they, they choose to be dissatisfied about, whether it's they're not, the complaints aren't being listened to or the food is bad. or But it serves a dual purpose. Guys that attack are attacking for a reason. They've been dutied for a reason. So either they've done something wrong, like they've attacked a fellow gangster, or they've stolen the camp's drugs, or they've done something wrong and they have to fix it on Mapuza. But at the same time, they have been built. They've been promoted in the gang. And in order for that promotion to be legitimate, they've got to take blood. I must just clarify that not all promotions, they have to take blood. There are certain, certain positions in the rank that you do, but not all of them. Most of your promotions happen by what they call lip and tongue. So in other words, your senior members are watching you and watching your abilities and watching you, your work and your skill and your knowledge. They promote you that way. Anyone else feel like they're having the veil lifted here? like you're finally seeing the truth of something for the first time? And how random is that? Well, maybe random is the wrong word, because it seems absolutely nothing to do with the number is random. But 
so I've done something wrong, or I've got an issue with a friend. And to resolve that issue, my friend and I aren't going to hash it out together. Instead, I'm going to pick some other person that's completely unrelated to our issue and punch them in the face. Yes, I'm simplifying for the analogy. And then me and my friend are all good again. Because I punched someone else. Okay. Look, from what Dr. Krobler has said about the history of the number, we can clearly see that prison wardens and officials have come to represent the oppressor in number culture. So in a way, it does make sense. To them, at least. Again, with this information, I'm starting to look at everything I hear in the news in a completely different light. With the 28s briefly explained, Dr. Krobler now gets into the 27s. And they are, well, scary, to say the least. And then you get the 27s. Now, the 27s are men of blood. They are sort of blood-focused, so to speak. They're also known as Holland or Scombizo. Their characteristics are quite different. For example, they don't have a specific time to attack because, they, as I say, they're men of blood. They can attack any time. They're very individualistic and prefer to work on their own. They're the mediators between the 28s and 26s. So even in a cell, a 26 can't speak to a 28 without going through 27. Yeah, they take instructions from 26s who are their half-brothers. And they have very strict criteria when recruiting. They would mostly recruit people that are gutsy, aggressive, no guilt, no remorse, unemotional, and well-presented. Yeah, they themselves are usually quite educated, good support systems. Their greeting, they greet each other home or scumbizo. When a 27 greets a 28, they first pick up their own sign, in other words, their thumb and forefinger. Then they'll acknowledge the 28 pickup. But the 27 pickup sign is, is superior to all the others. The most common tattoos they have, they don't have really busy, busy bodies, so to speak. Some of them are covered in tattoos, but the 27 is more, um, they'll have either things like guns facing upward, or they'll have sunrise. Remember, 27, 26 works by day. That's also called, like the 28s would have tonalanga, they'll have pumalanga, sunrise. And then, of course, they'll have their good years to show their rank. Their rank structure, the 26, 27s are exactly the same rank structures. Also very militaristic. They've also got their judges, their, well, their fighting generals. The 26 and 28s have got their generals, and then they've got, they've got three levels as well. First levels are all, obviously all your number ones. Second level, number twos. Your first levels have always got a general. Now, the second level has got what they call a fighting general, um, which is also a very senior position. And they also have your, your lawyers, your, your balangs, your judges. And then they've got a, a third division as well, which is your kapadin, your soldiers, your sergeants, sergeant major, and your soldiers, for example. They've got different gunias, like a general bit would be a 12-star, six, six, six on each um, shoulder. And then, again, they've all got their own function. But with the 26 and 27 gang, your, your fluctuators 
reflect your flock ones. So in other words, you will have you'll have a judge one and a judge two, for example. So 27s are basically a group of well-presented psychopaths whose entire purpose is led by bloodshed. Well, alrighty then. Fun times. Sorry, I'm not trying to be simplistic or joke about this. It's actually blowing my mind. And it's really making me see things very differently. Especially crimes that happen in the Western Cape. We've covered the 28s and 27s. Now Dr. Krobler gets into the 26s. And they are an interesting bunch. And then your 26s, they are quite a different bunch. They focus solely on, as they say, caking kruen. So in other words, they look at money. They look at getting resources for the camp. That is their daily function. They're very big in smuggling. That's basically their, their work. And, and the 26ers, their characteristics, they're neat. They're very humble. They're good negotiators. They're talkative. They're only aggressive if, if needs be. They're very practical. They're systemic thinkers and problem solvers. Their primary function is to, uh, to get resources. And they're also the ones that will rob fellow offenders of whatever they want, you know, be it drugs, be it uh, shoes, be it anything. So a lot of gangsters, 26ers, if you ask them why they joined the 26ers, they'll tell you, I love money. Those are very, very generic, broad outlines of your three number gangs. There's actually quite a clear delineation between the types of crimes that the three numbers get involved in and I wondered how that impacted which number an offender was recruited to. The, the 26ers would look at recruiting fraudsters, bank robbers, your, your normal sort of housebreakers. They would look for, for those characteristics in the people they recruit. Uh, people that are skillful, clever. They'll tell you, or they admit a skill. So they would look for whatever traits they need to survive in prison, they would look during recruitment. The 27s, again, would look more for, obviously, your sort of hitman type, your almost your psychopaths, those sort of people who, murderers, people that are unafraid in their eyes. And your 28s are sort of more broad. They tend to not be terribly fussy. That's why they're so big. It's, it's the biggest gang by far. Um, if they can use you in some other way, they recruit you, and that includes, your, obviously, your sex offenders. I wondered whether either of the numbers was held in higher esteem by the others. So do 26s and 27s automatically defer to a 28? And Dr. Krobler said no. While the 26s and 27s see themselves as brothers, they don't get involved in each other's matters and none of the numbers are more important than the other. They're all equal and separate. The idea of various numbers ritualistically carrying out their crimes at certain times of the day also fascinated me. I asked Dr. Krobler if that would apply to crimes committed on the outside too. So if police came across a crime committed during the day 
that clearly has gang characteristics, could they easily say that this was the work of a specific number? Dr. Krobler told me that's not the case, because the criminal event is often long, and the first action, like maybe the theft of a getaway car, might happen in the morning, but the rest of the crime might only take place later that day. So, this is not a defining characteristic for numbers crimes outside of prison, but certainly it is inside of prison. We often hear about senior people in gangs being transferred to other provinces to sort of break their hold over a prison, and I asked Dr. Krobler if she thinks that this tactic really works. Yes, in my experience it actually does work to transfer the really the really senior guys. Look, unfortunately, you cannot stop them talking to their followers, their manskapa, as they call it, or, you know, because they, they have access to telephones and they have access to cell phones in prisons. Totally illegal, but they do. But yes, because their support system, albeit in, in, in the form of their family or their, their followers, kappa outside, are so far away, far more difficult to, to talk to coordinate, to have face-to-face meetings with them, in other words, visits and that kind of thing. So it doesn't totally break their hold on their particular operations, but it certainly does make it a lot more difficult. And it also makes it more difficult for them because if they are far away, let's say from the Western Cape, for example, they have to build new networks wherever they are. And it's, it's, it's very difficult because they're out of their comfort zone. The language is different. The people are different. The cultures are different. It is a good strategy. It's a very good strategy. I was interested to find out about the other prison gangs that had been mentioned. The others were the Big Five, which I said you don't really get in, in our prisons. But they, they would associate more with a gang like the 28s because they, they also do Lao sodomy. But they... They are more smaller gangs, so when it comes to the number, you know, when when one looks at the number, they are sort of more almost insignificant. But they're there, and the Royal Air Force 3 and the Royal Air Force 4, so the the Royal Air Force 3, 23, again, you're looking at numbers, numerals, would sort of align themselves with the 26s if needs be, and the Royal Air Force 24 would align themselves with the 28s if needs be. But, um, you know, as I said, they're... Their focus is on escaping. It's a different focus from the number gangs, the traditional number gangs. Of course, you get the triple sixes, which are uh, cult-based gangs. They they will associate with whoever can support their rituals. So say, for example, there has been bloodletting for whatever reason. Say the 28 spilled blood. They will automatically use that to to conduct their own their own rituals inside of prison. But they don't join a number gang at all. They just feed into their blood rituals. Yeah, because their emphasis is also is, is like on sacrificing blood and sex. That, that's the big thing with the, the triple sixes. But they are a cult-based, a cult-based gang. And they come from, you know, the outside. There's some provinces where their cult is very strong in terms of street gangs, for example, the Free State. So you would obviously... That again would get transported into the prison. So in the Western Cape, we don't really have some other other provinces do. 
I am gobsmacked. An occult-based prison gang. Um, yes, I'm going to be looking into that one a bit more. You can be assured. I wondered whether, specifically referring to the numbers gangs, with this deep indoctrination that happens, is this something that is almost in people's blood? Like, are they almost born a number? Or destined for it? You know, there's always that debate about do they choose to become a certain number or do the numbers choose them? And yes, there are circumstances where they're in a particular number for a particular reason. Very often that's to do with, say, things that are totally out of their control, like being sodomized and they're getting raped when they get to prison and then being claimed by the 28th. Or that is totally out of their control and out of their, cho- their choice. But what tends to happen more often than not is when when you ask a gang member, so why did you join this gang or that gang or whatever, besides, say, for example, the 26s before they besides their love of money, they'll tell you, when I got to prison, some of my my homeboys were in there, uh, and they're 26s. So I would, obviously then they would automatically join them because then they've got protection as well. Protection is a big thing. There are various causes of, of, of why they join street gangs and prison gangs. There are loads of causes which again is a project on its own. Sometimes you'll get cases where dad was a 28 and his son is a 26. That so happens. With your big gangs, um, outside gangs, yeah, it will be intergenerational. Yeah. It happens, definitely. Rehabilitation of offenders and parole have been hot topics recently. And I wondered how this prison gang effect would impact a prisoner's prospect for rehabilitation. You know, the thing is, there are only limited ways you can walk away from, from the number. So in prison, you, you usually find it with, with the guys that have been inside a long time. They've had enough, many of them. They've, they've really just had enough. They, they want to go home. They want to try some sort of normalcy. But when you, you, you have to consult, obviously, you've got to consult, particularly if you're a senior member, you... You cannot just walk away. Say any member of a gang wants to leave, they've got to consult. And, and usually the way they, they can leave is if they've converted to religion of sorts or they, they're attending school and, and, and bettering themselves. But then they've got to make it quite clear to the leaders, I'm, I'm leaving now. Um, and then what happens is the leaders say, that's fine. That, that's fine, but we're watching you. And if we see at all that you are lying to us or you're fooling us, then, you know, then there's trouble. And then, of course, the, the, the third one is, the third way is death. But yeah, they, they have got that option. And then in terms of, of rehabilitation, myself, Chris Malchus, we developed gang-specific assessment tools. And a few times we've been able to use them. They've actually been very telling because we developed one that you do on people that are about to go out and you could see the difference. You could just see, okay, this gang, this guy is going to reoffend, or this one's going to be okay. They, they determined if they want to, I'm talking about the number, number gangs now, street gangs are a different story. They determined to leave the number gang. They can. But now if you're a senior number, that's a different story. You can say, I'm not interested anymore. But you can never truly leave because as an elder, so to speak, 
you've got to allow yourself to be consulted with by the gang, or at the very least, you are entitled to to know what is going on. When they reach a certain age, like say over 60 or something, then the gang, they'll do what they say, or sit your opie plus. Uh, so in other words, they will retire you, but you will still get all your you will still get all your benefits from the camp. So you'll still get your tobacco, whatever it is you need, you will still get from your your camp. But in terms of your knowledge and stuff, they won't just let you sit there and you know they uh, they will pick your brains. So essentially, there are three ways to leave a gang: actively convert to religion, start studying or die. And when you get old enough, you get to retire, but you still have to be a freelance consultant forever. But you get your retirement tobacco. So that's cool. I joke. But I think that if I look at the likelihood that any person involved in the numbers gangs would have the resources to actually permanently separate themselves from the number, when they're still living in the same neighborhoods, dealing with the same people, and knowing full well that if they slip even a little, or if the gang even suspects them of something, that third option immediately comes into play. How likely is it that you're going to get out? Plus, there's that indoctrination element. I said to Dr. Krobler that it almost strikes me as a voluntary, conscious cult indoctrination. It's quite bizarre, actually. The elements are all so similar, except these people, for the most part at least, know what they're getting themselves into, and they go along with it. And then we chatted about parole. Because as far as I'm concerned, if these gang elements aren't being taken into consideration, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And from what we know about the people currently sitting on our parole boards, I'm guessing they don't have a detailed understanding of the dynamics of prison or street gangs. I asked Dr. Krobler about her insights around our current parole assessments. The whole sort of parole thing, as far as I'm concerned, we can do so much better. We we really can. Look, to answer your question, in order to be able to focus on the individual sitting in front of you, affiliation and, and, and situation, you've got to understand that. In my experience, robots don't. They focus a lot on the rehabilitation efforts the potential parolee has um, engaged in. What programs has he done? What skills has he learned? Everything that's possible to help them once they're out do not fall back on crime. Those are sort of your the major considerations. And then they'll also look at uh, reports from psychologists and social workers and weigh those up. And so the process per se is, is thorough. But yes, things do go wrong because there isn't much knowledge on criminal behavior on, on parole boards uh, generally, be it gangs, be it serial rapists, be it whatever. There's not knowledge on that at all. To the best of my knowledge, you, you, you won't find criminologists, psychologists, even social workers on parole boards. So to me, you know, that's just counterintuitive. It's, it's, it makes absolutely no sense. They're very good 
administrators and adherence to policy. It's a, a, a huge gap when it comes to proper understanding of criminal behavior. Rehabilitation. How on earth do you measure it? How, you know, it's, it's an intangible concept. You can't, you know, you cannot say this person is 100% rehabilitating, but there are, like going back to the risk assessment, we do, there are certain indicators that'll scream at you and say, uh-uh, but, you know, this guy, nope, don't, don't do it. And the others that say, yeah, he's ready. So, yeah, but, but it's not a perfect science, not by any means. Dr. Knobler points out, though, that although a lot of focus has been put on parole decisions, often the major failings that are seen in terms of reoffending start elsewhere in the prison system. And sometimes it just boils down to knowledge and resources. So sometimes we have major failures, perhaps because there were important elements not considered not just by the parole board, but throughout the whole process of them being incarcerated. You know, I found there's not a huge focus on past crimes, and those to me are the most important. You can get a chap sitting in there for murder, but he's got a string of rape charges previous. See what I'm saying? And there's also a huge reliance on psychologists, because really there's a huge dependence on them to counsel and to give therapy to these guys to change behavior. And um, we could double, triple our amount of psychologists we have, but we don't have forensic psychologists. We have uh, mental health professionals, but we've got we've got very good ones. But they, there's a lot of pressure on them, huge pressure on them when it comes to to rehabilitation. If you'd like to hear more about the work that psychologists do within DCS in helping to treat and rehabilitate offenders. You can listen to the interview I did with Zibeth Hansen last year. Zibeth provides a wealth of information about her work and the DCS system in that interview. And I think listening now to the insights Dr. Knobler provides, I have even more respect for the work she and other people working within DCS do, because there are lots of dynamics at play here, especially in certain provinces in our country. It's not just a matter of treating an offender for behavioral or psychological issues that may have played a role in his offending. It is seriously complex. So we know quite a bit about prison gangs so far. But I wondered, are there offenders who don't belong to prison gangs? And what does their prison journey look like as a result? You do get offenders that do not belong to prison gangs. They they refer to as Ferranza. Okay, so and they they are actually the ones in the system that uh, command some sort of respect because they have probably as young offenders, you know, they've probably been beaten, robbed, you know, forced to to wash gangsters' clothing, do everything else, but they've stuck to. They've stuck to their resolve. They they refuse to to be part of prison gang, and eventually the gangs will respect that. You know, at the end of the day, gangs they 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 have a very strong pack mentality, obviously, whether they outside or inside. And an individual that that stands up to them, they they'll do what they can to try and change their mind. But at the end of the day, they they're going to respect the chap's decision and just let him get on with his life. In, within a cell, they, they, they are a nothing. You know, they a tree that's there or 
you know, they, they have no rights in terms of the number. So, yes, you get those guys, and then you get uh, the, the gangs, yes, they would actively try to group these chaps. They're very sort of devious. When a newcomer comes in, they will always be approached by the captain and the inspector, one of a gang, and they'll ask the guy, you know, Bichier, and if the guy gives his name, he'll get beaten up. If they don't hurt him, they will actively watch him for the next couple of days and try and find out as much as possible from him and see what use he'll be to which, you know, which camp and then act- actively try and recruit them. Yeah. Um, let's say you've never been to prison, but you, you're an outside gangster and you affiliate, let's say, for example, you're an American. Now, most Americans are 26 so you'd come in and they'd say this J and then you'd say France uh, So in other words, they, they're not full prison gangsters, but they affiliate, identify with the 26ers, say for example. And then they then of course they go through the whole the whole schooling process. Let's break that down. So what Dr. Kroble is saying is if you go to prison for the first time. You have no outside gang affiliations. You've never seen a gangster before. You're going to be asked a single question. Who are you? And if you answer with your name, because you know no better, they know that you are unaffiliated, and you get beaten up or watched intensely. Essentially, they're trying to figure out if you really are unaffiliated, or if you're pretending to be unaffiliated, or a France, as they call them. If you've been schooled on the outside already and know your stuff, you'll state your gang affiliation as your identity. Again, there's no such thing as the outside to these people. Inside prison, you exist as a number or a France. There's no middle ground. Also, I would not recommend making up an affiliation to avoid getting beaten up. Until now, the offenders and gang members we've been talking about are all male. Numbers members are only male. There are no female numbers members. So I asked Dr. Krobla about the women's prisons. How does it work there as far as, as prison gangs are concerned? No, female prisons... They don't have number gangs, they don't have formal gangs, they have gangs that identify by sexual orientation. So I don't know about the other provinces, but in the Western Cape, you'd have gangs that refer to themselves as the Brookies or the Skirchies. You know, the Brookies would obviously be those that identify more um, same-sex, and the Skirchies will be your more heterosexual females. So yeah, they identify by bisexual orientation in prison, but they don't have rituals, and they're not—they they don't have. It's not like the men at all. Now, I cannot help but think about the prison wardens having to navigate this minefield of prison gangs. Are these people being educated about what they're actually walking into? If they're not, they could badly read the signs of a prison yard, for instance and find themselves on the wrong end of a gang dispute. I asked Dr. Krobler exactly how much education DCS officials are given in the dynamics of gangs. 
Let's get back to my colleague, Chris Malchus. He was a warder in Portsmouth for 40 years, and he had principles, right? And one of the first things he decided was he's going to, up until today, and he's been retired for a few years, is that he's going to learn everything he can about the number games. And I think in many ways, that kept him safe as well. You know, he, he was a no-nonsense warder, did his job, but he understands the gangs inside out. And I think, unfortunately, more broadly, that is most certainly not the case. I think we would be able to reduce a lot of this criminal subculture-related activities if our officials were far deeper schooled in the number gangs. There are guys, make no mistake, there are guys in the system that are very knowledgeable in terms of the number. But I think it should, it should be a prerequisite in every single prison in the country that they do courses on it and learn about it. And, and, and who's in a better position to learn about number gangs than, than prison officials? And then they would be able to read the situation in a prison. I mean, if you, let's take a basic thing. The early morning, you're going to work, you enter that prison and it's dead quiet. Your first instinct's got to say, what's wrong here? Because prisons are never quiet. They are very noisy. So you're, you're, you've got to think, wow, why is this so quiet? What's happening? And if you are knowledgeable about the number, you would realize that something is going to happen. They're planning something. Or maybe if, if we unlock, they're going to come up and attack, come out and attack. You know, these, these kind of dynamics, and you can go to plan B. I think they do have a module on it at the college, but you as an official need to empower yourself. Dr. Krobler regularly cites concerns that members of the public may feel that her work somehow glamorizes offenders by exposing this dark underworld of prison gangs. But she says that for her, it's more about empowering members of the public and members of law enforcement and DCS with knowledge about offenders. And I feel the same way. We can either talk about this stuff, try to get some understanding of it, and move forward with some knowledge, or we can cover our eyes, pretend it's not happening, and wait for it to touch our lives. Because as much as prison gangs might only, for the most part, directly impact prisons, they also deeply impact society and crime within South Africa as a whole. Even you sitting in your comfy apartment or house in whatever suburb, you are impacted by this on a daily basis. If we truly want to deeply understand what is happening to victims of violent crime in South Africa, we have to understand the offenders and their own dynamics. So really, understanding the offenders does serve the victims, those that have been lost, and those future victims, who we've yet to see, but no doubt we'll hear about soon. I honestly think that this was one of the most eye-opening interviews I've ever had on TCSA. And I want to thank Dr. Krobler for sharing her insights with me and taking the time to chat with me. Dr. Krobler is the author of a book called Crossing the Line, When Cops Become Criminals. 
It's available on Amazon in ebook format, but unfortunately is no longer in print. Thank you for listening to my interview, Prison by Numbers, Understanding Prison Gangs with Dr. Lisa Grobler. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. And don't forget to subscribe to my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can also follow both shows on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>